0: Remain standing as we read from God's Word. 1 Peter 1, 3-12 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be ve- things into which angels long
1: to look. I'll do it. That's my fault. (laughs) Here we go. Awesome. Well, good morning. I just want to make sure that works because I know we have people here for not different reasons, and that's the way we record things is through the microphone. So I can talk really loud, and it's not a problem, but we do have some people who aren't able to make it with us this morning. So I want to make sure that they get access to that. Well, I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We are nearing the end of our study of the book of Titus. It's a quick study because it's only three chapters long, this little book, but I think it has been jammed, packed with really, really good things. And this passage is one of those things, Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7. I've titled the sermon The Great Contrast, Because what I want us to look at as we look at this passage together is the great contrast that is between who we were, who we once were before Jesus, and not just who we are now, but who God is. Who we once were and who God is. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at first who we were, as we look at verse 3, and then we're going to look at two different things about God and who he is and how he has changed us and continues to change us. And that's what I want us to see is that there is a extreme contrast in this. Uh, This week as I was studying and I was in the Westland Library uh, there, it's probably a little awkward because I'm like tearing up in the back of the library as I just sat and read this passage over and over again. And all of God's word is inspired. All of God's word is helpful. That's why we walk through verse by verse here. But there are sometimes just certain passages that are just so clear about what God has done for us. And that's this kind of passage. This passage really walks through what it means to be a Christian, who we were apart from Jesus and how hopeless we were and who we have been made into because of him and what he has done. And as, as I was just reflecting on that, I'm just worshiping God in the back of this, this little library. And I just want to encourage you, before you hit community group this week or as you think about this, take some time and just sit in this one. I hope we're always doing that, but, but I really want you to sit in Titus chapter 3, 3 through 7. Let's go ahead and read that together. Picking up in verse three, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God pour out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a good passage. That is good good news that we have in the gospel. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, I just pray for for myself right now. I ask God that you would give me clarity of mind as we walk through this passage together, that you would work in me by your spirit in the ways that, um, by your grace that I have prepared. God, that uh, the horse is ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Lord, help me to know that I have prepared, this horse has put on his saddle, but ultimately, God, the victory belongs to you, and God, we just ask that you would have your way by your spirit, that the word of God would be applied to our lives. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to look first at verse three here. It says, For we once ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. On the slide here, the point is just called we were dot, 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 because seven things don't fit on a slide very well, right? Because that's what this gives us. It gives us seven things, and this is not a pretty picture, When you look at who you were before you came to know Jesus and who you are, even now sometimes, if we're honest because of dwelling sin that still lives within us because we are a, a work that's not yet completed, God is still having his way in us, changing us over time, it's just not a very pretty picture where the Bible talks about us as human beings. I mean, look at this. Like Again, there's like seven different things that it tells us here. It says that we're foolish. In other words, you're a bad decision maker. You don't make the right choices on your own apart from God and his wisdom. You're disobedient and unruly. My son is a great example of that. He was just crawling under a chair just a little bit ago, right? He just doesn't do what you ask him to do. And that's all of us. We can look at him and see that. But that's me too. I'm unruly. I, I don't want to obey. I don't want to do the things that are right to do. We're led astray. Or another way we could translate that is we're deceived. We're totally deceived before Jesus. Everyone who's not a Christian, who doesn't know Christ, who God hasn't revealed himself to them in that special, supernatural kind of way that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit, they're deceived. They don't see the world rightly. They don't see that there is a creator of the universe and that he is the God of the Bible who sent his son to die for sin. They're missing that, and they're deceived by that. And because they don't give their lives to the God of the Bible— they're ruled by something else this passage tells us we are slaves of our passions and our pleasures apart from jesus you're a slave apart from jesus you're ruled by your own desire your passions and your pleasures and those things can run the gamut of of desire of of physical pleasure of the pleasures of of drunkenness, of of drugs and alcohol, of, of sexual immorality, of those kind of things, to just like the desire of just wanting to sit on the couch at the end of the night and watch TV with nobody bothering you. And then when someone does bother you, you get really mad and you lash out at them. Listen, that is a moment where you're being ruled by desire. You're being ruled by passion and pleasure. And a lot of times we look at those moments, we think, oh, that's just not, but is that really that bad? And what we'll look at is, yeah, because, man, you're a slave. Is being a slave that bad? Yeah, it is. It's really bad. It's, it's a problem. That's where we are. And as we do that, we're just passing our days in malice and envy. That's, that's supposed to help us understand it's, like, constant. We don't just have these, like, ups and downs of good and bad. It's telling us we're passing our days in malice and envy. Apart from Jesus, we're angry. Apart from Jesus, we we think negatively. We're just those people. We're filled with malice and we're jealous. We're jealous of what everyone else has. I want that. I want to covet that. I want to be that thing. The grass is always greener on the other side, apart from Jesus. That's who we are. and We're passing our days in that. And when you pass your days in malice and envy, it leads to you, what? Being hated by others and hating others. That's strong Language, hatred in your heart. Hatred between other people. And that's what this passage tells us about us before Jesus. When we aren't Christians, this is who we are. I want to bring up two passages here because I just want to talk about the Bible for just one second. This is what the Bible says about the Bible. In Second Peter 1, 2 through 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture... What we just read, that hard stuff about who we are, comes from someone's own interpretation. I'm just reading the text to you. It's not my interpretation that has the authority. It's the text itself. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to show you is this. Paul was supernaturally being blessed by the Holy Spirit when he wrote those hard words. You have to decide, are you going to let yourself interpret your circumstances and your condition? Or will you let the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, say, this is who you really are apart from Christ? You can't downplay this. This is who you really are. And Peter really even drives this home in chapter three, 15 through 18, when he even talks about Paul's letters because he says, and count the patience of the Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And he does in, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And maybe just sometimes hard to accept like you're a sinner. It's a hard thing to accept. Which the ignorant and unstable, those who are deceived, this is what Paul is telling us, when we're apart from Jesus, twist to their own destruction, and as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You, beloved, as you read Titus 3, 3 don't get carried away by the idea that I don't know, I don't know that that's I'm not that bad. That's not really who I am. Don't get carried away by that, but instead grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we have to see because the temptation for all of us, the temptation for me is to look at the sin in my life, the remaining sin, and to look at it and say, it's just not quite that bad. It's not really as bad as Paul makes it out to be, right? I'm not that messed up. But the word of God is telling you that you are that messed up. In 1973, in Stockholm, Sweden, a man walked into the uh, bank named jan Eric Olsen, pulled out a sub-automatic machine gun, shot it into the air and said, the party has begun in an American accent of all things because he didn't want to get caught. And all havoc broke loose in this bank. And Olsen took four hostages back into the vault as everybody else left and he demanded just a couple of things. He demanded, one, that his partner in crime, who was in prison at the time, Clark Olofsson, would be brought to the bank. He demanded that he would get a getaway car, a Mustang, of all things. I guess he really likes American stuff, American accent, American cars. Of all things, and $700,000 of uh, Swedish currency. The police in Sweden, in Stockholm, gave him all of those things. Clark was allowed to go into the bank. They gave them everything except for one thing. They would not allow them to take the hostages with them into the car to ensure that they would get a clean getaway. So here they were at this standoff. These men in Stockholm, Sweden, the police outside, snipers at the ready trying to negotiate. And over time, in the hours of those negotiations, something really, really strange began to happen. These hostages started to develop a very weird and peculiar emotional attachment to their captors. They began to have a great affection for them, so much so they feared the police more than they feared their captors. At one point in a rage, Clark Olofsson threatened to shoot one of the hostages in the leg, this man in the leg. He said, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to shoot you in the leg. And the man says, he remembers thinking to himself, how kind of him. He's only going to shoot me in the leg. And one of the ladies that was a hostage said, I can't believe I said this, but I literally said to Sven, Sven, let him shoot you in the leg. It's just a shot in the leg. It's just a bullet to the leg. Let him do it. He can shoot you somewhere else. This is what they did. The The relationship became so strong between the captors and these hostages that, that when finally the Venk vanc- vault, got pumped full of tear gas, the hostages refused to leave without their captors in fear that the police might gun down the captors. And so the hostages escorted out their captors, hugged them, kissed them, shook their hands. As one woman was being taken away on a stretcher and Clark being put into the back of a police police car, she shouted out, "'Clark, I will see you again soon.'" This phenomenon later became known as Stockholm Syndrome. It's this psychological disorder in the midst of severe trauma where captive people become captivated by their captors. The people who are doing them harm and doing evil to them, they become convinced that they owe these people something. And my fear is that for many of us, though we are slaves to sin, We see and treat sin like we have a spiritual form of Stockholm Syndrome. It's not that bad. It's just a bullet in the leg. That's our understanding of sin. Instead of realizing that that's the captor, that's my slaver, that's who's who's got me, and it's a cruel taskmaster. Our sin is cruel to us. It will destroy us, and it will kill us. It's not out for for its own good. The enemy isn't out for, for our good. He seeks to destroy us, and yet we've been lulled into this weird and strange affection with the things that are going to kill us, rather than committing to put the death the things of the flesh, rather than seeing what the true enemy is. You see, sin is our captor. We cannot fall in love with that. We have to see it for what it is. When you read these passages in the Bible, you have to be convinced, I'm really that bad. I'm still struggling. Because when we're convinced of that, it paves the way for the good and glorious news of the gospel. See, that's why we need someone else to intervene because we've been deceived. We've been brought into captivation. We need a rescuer to come and do that. We're trapped by our own passions and desires. And don't we have good news in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. Let's read that together but when the goodness and loving kindness of our of God our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy. You need a rescuer. You need a captor. And here's the good news. You have one in Jesus. This word appeared. It's the third time that we have, ironically, seen it appear in this passage, right? And we've been talking about what that means. It comes from the, the word that we get, the word epiphany. It's this sudden revelation. It's, it's something that just comes to mind. It's, it's a total game changer, and he's saying when he epiphanied, when God appeared, he did that in his goodness and loving kindness and his mercy. And if we read down a couple more verses, it even tells us that according to his grace, we've been justified. Right? So, what do we see here? That God saved us, and this passage is really, really explicit. How? Why are we saved? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, we're saved according to his own mercy. We're saved because he is good, because he is kind, because he's merciful, and later we'll see because he is gracious. That's why God saves us. That's why God does what he does because of his own character. The great contrast I want you to see is your character apart from Jesus. Your sin really is that bad. But the great and wonderful news that God at his core, at who he is, he is the God who is good and kind and merciful and gracious. That's who God is, and that's your Savior. He's the Savior that has appeared. You need a rescuer, but you don't need just any rescuer. You need one who's really good, who's really kind, who's really merciful, who's really gracious. And you have that in Christ Jesus, that God sent his son to live this life, this hard, difficult life, even though he didn't have to do that died on the cross for your sin and for my sin, the sin that we're talking about in verse three, he is putting it to death in his death. And then because of his goodness, because of just how awesome and great he is, he resurrects from the grave. He resurrects from death and he conquers it, sin and death. So if we put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, we can be saved not by our own works, but by what he is doing. I deeply desire that all of us would massage this down deep into our heart of hearts, that we would embrace the truth and the knowledge that Jesus has saved us, but not because we're good, not because of our good works. The passage is clear. He saved us. This one gives us four reasons, because he is good, because he is kind, because he is merciful, and because he is gracious. Now, we're going to massage that in together. you ready? It's going to be a real, little bit awkward. And it's going to be really awkward if you don't participate. Okay? So don't make this any more awkward than it needs to be. Please. All right? Here's what we're going to do. You're going to repeat after me. All right? We're going to say it out loud together. It should be on the screen. It's on the screen. Nailed it, Lauren. Thank you. There it is. Right? So I'll say it, you say it back. I'll even gesture with my hands. Okay? Everybody's gonna do this. Vera and Levi, the only ones excused. Alright? Here we go. He is good. He is good. He is kind. He is merciful. He is merciful. And he is gracious. He is gracious. Do it again. He is good. He is good. He is kind. He is merciful. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is, good. he is good, he is kind, he is, kind. He is merciful, he is, merciful. He, is gracious. he is gracious. All right, here's what we're going to do this time. I'm going to say God is, and you're just going to say good, kind, merciful, gracious. Can we do that all four together? You're going to say all four, right? God is good, kind, merciful, gracious. God is good, kind, merciful, gracious. Why do I do that? Why do I have a call and response in the middle of the sermon? Why why do that? Because this is so important. This is so important. This will radically forever change your life if you understand this. You are not a Christian because of anything good that you've done. You are not a part of the church because of anything good that you have done. You are not a child of God, an heir of righteousness that we're going to talk about later. You don't have eternal life. You don't have that hope because of anything good you have done. You've done that because God is good, kind, merciful, and gracious. Amen that's the truth. We have got to get that deep into our souls. It's got to resonate because in those moments where shame and doubt and guilt overwhelm you, you've got to know my God is good, kind, merciful, gracious. This is covered in the blood of Jesus. I get to move on. I can repent and change, not because of what I've done. And that is such good news. That's what I was hitting in the library, and I'm just worshiping God of it. That's why I'm back there just raising raising my hands as my daughter chews on my sweatshirt. Like, why am I overwhelmed by that? Because I see the goodness of God. Oh, it's there. He is so incredibly good. We can't miss it. We've got to be captivated by it. It's got to be in our bones. Because the reality is we can say it, but the question is, do you believe it? When we see this truth that we are saved wholly of God and what he's done, that is beautiful and great news. I need that news over and over and over again. That's why I got to show up Sunday after Sunday into community group after community because I got to be reminded that the Bible tells me that this is how salvation happens. And that's going to lead us to our final point this morning as we talk about a little bit more of what happens because you are saved because the last point, God is rich. Listen to how he saves us. Picking up there in in the back half. of, I'm going to start at verse 5, just to kind of collect us here, and we're going to go 5 to 7 altogether. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is so much here. So much here. I cannot cover it all in one sermon. I could probably preach the same passage next week. I mean, there, there is so much goodness here as we look at this, what has he saved us by? And so for, for right now, I think it would be helpful. Sometimes you can diagram, if, if you remember back, you know, in like freshman year of high school when you diagram sentences, sometimes that's helpful. So I just want to help us do that. If we were to diagram this out, we would see like he saved us is the verb there. And then there's kind of these like p- parenthetical kind of statements, right? They're offset by commas, am I? Not because it works done by us, but according to righteousness. But we could look at that, we say, he has saved us, he saved us, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is a phrase. What in the world does that mean? That's a hard thing to do there. That that preposition that we, in our ESV is translated by, could also mean through, right? We're getting kind of the sense of that, that it's saying he has saved us, and it's telling us how. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a lot of debate of what in the world that means. I read a lot of different commentaries, and it went from the extreme of people talking about washing of regeneration, it means it definitely doesn't talk about baptism, to people who are like, it absolutely does talk about baptism, to more people saying like, I don't know, it probably, maybe, doesn't, I don't know. So that's kind of where I'm going to land. I'm going to say, I I don't know, really hard, like what that's talking about. I think probably it is. I think it's probably an early first century way to discuss baptism. And what it's it's doing is talking about the rebirth. Regeneration is just a a way to say rebirth. If you have ever heard the phrase being born again, that's where this comes from. So he's saying that you are being washed or laver is, is uh, the old KJV way of saying it. you would be lavered up, scrubbed by the Holy Spirit in your rebirth and being renewed. And, and what I think we need to do in this phrase, and it's a little tricky, is we need to see it as a unity, which actually makes it more complex to deal with, but I think it's more accurate. See it as one big phrase coming together. Right? It's not saying you're being saved by baptism and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's saying that all together. You are being saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You are being saved by, because what does John the Baptist tell us in, in early on in the Gospels and Mark? He says, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one who comes after me is baptizing you in the Holy Spirit, right? you baptize baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that's what it looks like. Now, what we would see is that's one event in your salvation story, that when you put your faith in Christ in Jesus, you are the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God lives within you. And he is washing you of former sin and also renewing you as you continue to live in this life. That Spirit is with you, and and that's what we see is happening in here. And what's so interesting is is what's really hard for us as Christians Westerners, as we look at this, and it kind of like maybe talk about baptism or whatever, and we get these really difficult views, and denominationally, we are all over the place as Christians of what these things mean. But what I want to say is, in the Bible, the Bible doesn't compartmentalize like the way that we do. So the Bible doesn't say, like, you're a Christian, and then you do good works, or you do good works, and then you're a Christian. The Bible says God radically and internally changes you. And then you do good works. Because in the Bible, the way that belief and faith is talked about, it's, it's basically saying you have to put feet to what's going on for that to be the kind of faith and belief the Bible is talking about. So what I'm saying is these are simultaneous things happening by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You are being reborn, regenerated, because you were sinful, right? How bad were we? That bad, according to the passage that we just read. You can't save yourself. You're a slave, and you're deceived, the passage said. You are lured away. you, 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 You can't save yourself. It's not by works of righteousness that you've done. So you need God to come and woo you to himself, to bring you to yourself, to tear the blinders away and rebirth you. So, you might be born again and save you, and then God is committed to the continual renewing of you, all of that by the Holy Spirit. One commentator uh, put it this way, and I think this is really helpful he said, God generously poured out the Spirit upon us. This outpoured Spirit inwardly regenerated and renewed us, and all of this was outwardly and visibly signified and sealed to us in our baptism. So what does this mean? We baptize people here. If we come around here, uh, Lord willing, they'll let us use the swimming pool over there. That'd, make it, that'd be pretty cool. If not, we'll find some other thing. My son does swimming lessons in there every Saturday. I, have, I got news. There ain't nothing special about that water. It's just chlorine water like any other water. And if I baptize somebody here, you guys already know there's nothing special about Josh. right? The baptism itself isn't saving or regenerating people. It's the Holy Spirit as he comes on them and changes them. At the same time, at Redemption Hill Church, it's a prerequisite to be a member, to be baptized. And people ask us, but you say we're saved by grace and faith alone. Like, I'm a Christian. Why do I have to be baptized? You don't have to be baptized to be a Christian. Christians get baptized. That's what we see in the Bible. Like, that's that's what happens every time. Every time. Someone comes to faith, they get baptized. And I believe it's because what God is teaching us is that our internal faith that he does and he is doing the work, we're not saved by any works of our own. He is doing all of that. But our saving, our salvation, is going to result in following the commands of God. And one of those commands is baptism. That's what we see. And we'll talk about this hopefully more depending on how things go with this new baby coming and everything. Because I'm going to try to, to teach from Titus 1.1. 1, 1, To the very end in one in one sermon we're going to talk about what salvation really means we'll go into that even deeper but it's so incredibly important for us that we look at this and we and we see what's happening especially because the theme of the letter of the book of titus has been that salvation leads to godliness that that if you believe in this gospel paul saying from the very beginning then you're going to live this way and that's what we want to see. And I think when it comes to the baptism, no baptism thing, I think one side plays down the importance of a, a really great church ordinance. Honestly, probably the side that we're a part of being Baptist. The other side, I think, overplays it when they say you've got to be saved by baptism because what they're then doing is underplaying all the other things that Titus has told us to obey. Titus has also told us that obedient Christians submit to their government, are self-controlled, are pure, kind, right? All of these things that we've, we've talked about in the book of Titus, they're all a part of being a Christian. God is changing you and doing those things within us, but he isn't just left you wanting. Because what happens in this scenario, when we get this wrong, is we have a view of salvation that's basically like this. God gets me to the one yard line, and then I just got to punch it in, Right? whether that's getting baptized, raising my hand, walking an aisle, whatever it is, God gets me to the one-yard line, and then I just punch it in. Jesus, Or we even say the opposite. Jesus did 99 yards, or, or you know, I did, like, the 99 yards. Like, I've done all the stuff. I've done the thing. And now Jesus just got to, he's got to do the one really hard thing and, and punch it into the end zone. What I want to say is Jesus takes it to goal line to goal line. The Spirit of God takes it all the way. Start to finish, that's what he's doing because the passage tells us he hasn't given you just enough of himself in the Holy Spirit. He hasn't just given you enough to be saved. What does the passage say? It says that God is rich. He says that he has poured out his spirit upon us richly. There's nothing lacking and nothing wanting in your life. You have been lavished in the spirit of God, according to Ephesians. You see, he has poured out the riches of his mercy on you according to his loving kindness. That thing that we just talked about. If God is, those four things that we just said, what you've got to see is you don't just have enough. He didn't just get you to the one yard line and now I've got to push in. Man, he gave you all of it and he is pouring his spirit on you. You are filled with the spirit of God as a Christian. and, and, And we've got to see then that that enables us to be what? So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This passage is saying, you're rich. You've become an heir of the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he hasn't withheld any of himself from you. That's what we want to see. The Holy Spirit is a who, not an it. The passage itself says whom he has poured out on us. We we don't want to break the Holy Spirit down to take away his personhood. What is he pouring on you? What is he giving you richly of? It's himself. Not riches, not wealth, not prosperity, not health. What does God give you? What does he bless you in? What are you so rich in? What are you an heir in? He has given you himself according to the hope of eternal life. And is saying, listen, you're mine. I've taken you goal line to goal line, and I'm gonna take you all the way into eternity. And you have that hope, and it is sure, and it is steadfast, why? Because God is good, merciful, he's kind, and he is gracious, because that's who he is. That's his character. He's never gonna let you go. And he's saying that good, big God is what he has poured on you richly, you're immersed in God himself, unified with God himself. I have a friend, she um, grew up in what's, what's called the prosperity gospel, and she, and she believed it, was in all the way, and she was told, man, if you just pray enough, if you just believe enough, God is going to get rid of your poverty. God's going to get, you're going to get that promotion, you're going to get that new job. You're going to get favor that you just can't imagine. And they would pray, and they would pray, and they would pray, and they would pray, and <laughs> they would still be poor. They would do all the things that they were told to do and she was all the way in, all the way in and then by God's grace through YouTube of all places, she heard the gospel. She heard that God loved her no matter what. That God was going to be there no matter what. That God was the one who took her goal line to goal line. That God loved her, set his heart on her and has saved her from her sin and that her main problem was not her poverty but her main problem was her sin before a holy God and that was great news because that holy God had made a way through Jesus Christ to be redeemed and be bought back by sin and she posted on her Facebook not too long ago and I love that she told that story, and shared that testimony and and the one thing that she shared, and I loved it, I loved how she said that. She said, what I came to learn was this, is that Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Brothers and sisters, if you don't learn that, heaven isn't the place for you. You're not going to want to be there because you know what the treasure is there. It's not the streets of gold. It's Jesus. Who's everybody worshiping at that throne? It's the lamb who was slain and who is worthy, who has won the nations to himself. That's who everybody's looking at. Heaven is a place for people who see that Jesus is the treasure, that he is the apex of all things. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and by his sacrifice, you have been made an heir with him of eternal life. And that's your hope. And if you miss that, you've missed the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that God is pouring out himself on you, that God himself lived this life, that God himself took on the punishment of sin. See, we, want to, we are a Trinitarian church, and what we are saying is salvation is Trinitarian. What God the Father willed, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies. And he has given you all of himself, and he has not lacked anything at all. And we have got to see that Jesus is the treasure. You are rich in Christ, and man, there ain't nothing more. Because if you settle anything less. And that's my application point for you from this point. Don't settle for anything less than that treasure. Don't settle for anything less than Jesus. Because if you are striving and ceasing after all of these things, whether it is, man, I know finances are tight. It's hard. I'm just trying to make it ahead a little bit here. And you've got to work hard. You've got to provide for your family. God's called you to do that. Or it is, the, the, I, I just want that status. I, I, want, I want that recognition. I want that respect. Those are things that I struggle with. That's why they come to my mind. That's what I want. Man, you're missing it. That's not the treasure. That's not the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. And he will never leave you wanting. never. You will find that when Jesus is the treasure, you are filled with joy. You can cease your striving and know he is God. As I wrap up today's sermon, I just, ah, this text is so good. I might just like sit on it myself later. I hope you do. If you don't know Jesus and something we'll start to do is, is I'll make sure that I'm always available at the back of the room. And if you bring your friends here, we'll always do that. And we'll let them know that the last song is a great time. If they want to respond to Jesus, that's a good time to respond to Jesus. And so I will be back there today. If you're, if you're not a believer, if you have more questions, if you want to know, we talked about baptism and this kind of stuff, if you want to work through that, I'm there and we can ask those questions and that's how we can do that. And it's a good way we can begin to respond as we continue to build this church service together as a brand new little church, I'll be there. And we can chat and we can talk. Because I I pray that everyone here sees and and worships as we sing this last song together, a God who is good, kind, merciful, and gracious. A God who saw us in our sin, in our despair. Those seven things are just kind of ugly. I don't like to think that about myself. But God looked at that and he said, I'm gonna show up And in my goodness, in my loving kindness, I wanna save them, not of works according to what they've done, but according to my mercy, according to my grace, I'm gonna save them. So that's what I wanna call you to do. I wanna call us all to respond. I'll be at the back, and if if that doesn't fit your category, how can you respond this morning? You respond as the band comes forward and leads us in singing. Let us pray. father i just love you i pray god that as we look at a passage like this a passage that just makes so much of you little of us as we look at these these amazing truths that <laughs> just what a poetic way for your spirit to inspire paul to say this but god but with the goodness and loving kindness of god appeared our great savior oh that's awesome Trapped, enslaved, no hope of salvation on my own, but oh God, in your goodness and your loving kindness, you showed up and you rescued me. You rescued this slave. Thank you for that. Help us worship you in that this morning as we sing to you this morning, as we respond to you this morning. And God, may we be worshipers that go out out of this place. And God, in our worship, we declare this good news to other people. We tell our friends and our family members about this, Lord. I pray that you would do that, that you would do an awesome and mighty work within us. May we ask this all in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, amen.